Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Well, folks, it's that lucky time in the calendar for you when Peterson Toscano guest hosts Spirit in Action, bringing us the best of the recent three months of Citizens Climate Radio. I can't get superlative enough about just how talented Peterson is. And a bit later on, you'll hear about the wealth of other podcasts Peterson orchestrates each month. A main topic he's bringing you today is storytelling using it to motivate work against climate change. And Peterson should know the subject well, what with all the wonderful storytelling he does through his theatrical and podcast work. The links are all on northernspiritradio.org, but right now I'm turning the show over to him. Go for it, Peterson. Hello, Mark, and thank you for having me back on Spirit and Action. And for you listening, thanks for joining me today. My hope is that by the end of this episode, you will feel more hopeful and you will have gained some necessary insights into storytelling. And the second half of the show, I'm going to share with you insider tips about storytelling. Every day, I tell stories to all sorts of audiences. I tell stories to move people to action, to stir up empathy. I tell stories in churches and congressional offices in Washington, D.C., on stage and here on the radio. I've learned that anyone can become an effective and engaging storyteller. You may not think you can, but you can. In today's show, I will talk about climate change stories, but fear not, many of the techniques that I will share with you apply to all sorts of stories. I'm also going to include concrete examples of the different types of stories we talk about. But first, I want to introduce you to some young people who are giving me a lot of hope. I don't know about you, but over the past several years, I've grown impatient with politicians in Washington. You know, from the State of the Union address earlier this week, the partisan divide and the outright animosity between Democrats and Republicans, it, it frustrates me and it sometimes even frightens me. Lately, though, I've been meeting with young people from both sides of the political divide, and they agree we must do something to address climate change and our energy needs. So I have good news to share with you about young conservatives who are taking climate change seriously. I want to introduce you to a young American conservative, one who insists on having a seat at the climate table. With most conservative climate advocates, uh, my story is not that unique. I think all of us at some point started off not really believing in the science or thinking that it was some kind of liberal issue and not really something for conservatives to touch or believe in. That's Adrian Rafizadeh, a recent high school graduate from California. I really believe that people who start to scaffold and look deeper and look beyond what the maybe conservative mainstream is, that they're able to find what the common sense is and that the science is actually real. I, again, I started out not really believing in, in, in the science. I took pride in it. I loved being that contrarian who would say, oh, well, actually, climate change is not what they're making it out to be, etc. early on in, like, in high school. As I began to 
learn more about climate science as I began to have more conversations on climate science, I really started to see that the facts are pretty undeniable. You really cannot deny that the climate is changing and that humans are responsible. When it came to U.S. climate policy, Adrian strongly opposed the first major attempt by Democrats. The Green New Deal was introduced in 2019. It was spearheaded by the progressive U.S. Member of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC. I think that the Green New Deal was a huge misstep in the climate movement. What the Green New Deal did was confirmed fears of conservatives that climate change is an exceptionalism to the U.S. In a sense, that's what the Green New Deal was. It said, we need to have the biggest mass mobilization since World War II of government resources to do X, Y, and Z. When I first saw the Green New Deal, I guess I was entertained by it because of just how ridiculous it sounded to me as a fiscal, conservative, small government kind of person. And then again, it, it kind of reinforced the idea that climate change is just a liberal idea. Even so... The Green New Deal on the table got a lot of conservatives thinking, talking, and writing about climate change. In fact, in seeking to debunk the Green New Deal, Adrian suddenly saw the issue of climate change very differently. For one of my classes, I had to write a paper and I chose to write about the Green New Deal. Just because I wanted to totally make fun of it and bash it and write about how terrible it was. Uh, When I got to all of the environmental goals and saying that we need to reduce our carbon emissions by X percent by 2050, etc. You really couldn't deny that. That's just simply true. We do need to reduce our emissions considerably to be able to avoid a climate catastrophe. And that's what I found as I was researching. And I really didn't want to come to that conclusion. But I found that, you know, what AOC and the leftists are saying is actually true when it comes to our objective here, which is to reduce carbon emissions. But again, there was that gap in my brain, which was, well, if they have the correct objective, but not the not an expedient means to get there, then how do we get there? That set Adrian on a quest to find a way to address climate change that also fits into his worldview and politics. Adrian politically leans right, and he is a member of the Republican Party. I asked about the labels he uses to define his politics. One that I would like is classical liberal, which essentially means that you are conservative on fiscal issues and more liberal on social issues. Open-minded Republican is also a good word. Lots of labels that I've used at different times. (laughs) Term Republican, I think, comes with a lot of baggage with it. There are certain ideals of Republicanism that I don't quite jive with, but I think seven out of 10 issues, I align with the party. So that's why I'm a member. So yeah. Growing up in California with immigrant parents helped shape Adrian's worldview. My parents chose this country because of all it has to offer and all the opportunity. And uh, we've been treated very well by by this country and we're very proud to be Americans. Um, they, They chose it for certain reasons. You know, this place is the epicenter of freedom and opportunity and it's just the greatest country in the world. And I really hate to see it maligned so often by its own citizens. My parents are both born in Iran. They moved here in the 80s following the revolution in Iran. And it was really the only choice they had. If you didn't comply with their political and religious standards, then you basically had to leave. There was nothing you could do there. They came in the 80s, they went to college here. They built themselves a successful career and family. I like to refer to them as the American dream because I think that they are. 
I get a lot of inspiration from them and uh, their journey. As a fiscal conservative concerned about the causes and impacts of climate change, Adrian rejects the progressive Democrats' approach to address these problems. Uh, the issue is then, what do conservatives do about it? A lot of conservatives have no idea what a conservative solution even is, because no one is really proposing that conservative solution that people know about. And it really wasn't until I found a citizen's climate lobby booth at a conservative political event and I got to interact and speak with conservative climate activists that I was able to understand really what I could do as a conservative in the climate space. And I was extremely excited to see finally there was a solution that appealed to my values, that used capitalism, that shrunk the size of government. All of that was really intriguing to me. And my core advocacy has always been that we need to be increasing our outreach to conservatives to show them again that there are solutions that they can get behind. We just need to get out there and and tell people about it. It was through Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL, that Adrian became excited about carbon fee and dividend. I was quite lucky and privileged in my introduction to CCL. When I was being welcomed into my chapter, they were all so excited to have uh, someone who was conservative to, to join. Also, I was able to get connected really quickly with the conservative caucus in CCL. Really, my first interactions with CCL were all either talking to real conservatives or everyone was very happy to have me on board. A lot of times that's not the case. A lot of times conservatives would join CCL and just feel like they're alienated, like they're not welcome or that they're just overwhelmed by a lot of the liberal conversations happening at chapter meetings or some of the conservative slander that happens. I can see how for someone new joining who's right of center, you know, a lot of those comments can make it feel like they're not in the right place or that they're doing the wrong thing by being an environmentalist. So I think that it's really, really important that CCLers to our left of center make it a welcoming environment for conservatives because for, for a conservative to get into climate advocacy, they're stepping out of their comfort zone. And you have to be able to accommodate that and make it so they feel comfortable or else they're just going to leave. Adrian sees young Republicans as an important political force in addressing climate change. Among younger Republicans, so Republicans under 40, is this really key demographic for climate outreach. Polling from Frank Luntz found that 75% of Republicans under 40 support a carbon fee and dividend, which is really major. Meanwhile, with older Republicans, it's there is still a considerable support, but nowhere near 75%. That 75% number is something that we're really trying to laser in on and focus on within the conservative caucus, because there's so much potential there. I was a conservative fellow for the better part of a year. What I would do is go and speak to conservatives on college campuses or young Republican clubs in my area, etc. You know, what I found was quite encouraging is that a lot of these young conservatives were basically like me. They believed in the science, but they didn't know what to do with that belief in the science. We have to have a seat at the table. We have to have a seat at the climate conversation and give our point of view. We have to be able to to say that conservatives want to have their own plan, or else if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, essentially, right? Conservative politicians are looking in the long term. They want to know in 20, 30 years, what will be our viability in elections? The ones who are driving that is younger voters. So if they want to be able to 
retain and recruit younger Republican voters, they need to show them that they are receptive to what these young people care about. Young people care about climate. Adrian Raff Bizaday is an incoming student at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. You can learn more about conservatives engaged in climate work by visiting cclusa.org slash conservatives. That's cclusa.org slash conservatives. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host RepublicEN.org's EcoRight Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an EcoRight leader bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the EcoRight Speaks. Our good news story comes from Nate Abercrombie, Conservative Outreach Coordinator for Citizens Climate Lobby. Thanks for having me on, Peterson. The Conservative Outreach Department, we are really excited by a few uh, developing projects. We are restarting the Conservative State Team Program, where we will be organizing volunteers at a state level to engage in conservative outreach, be that lobbying candidates trying to recruit new people or publishing media through a conservative perspective. The two teams to launch most recently are Texas and Montana. We already have a few existing teams in states such as Utah and California, but we're really excited to bring others on board. If this is something you're interested in, having a a team in your state, then please reach out to me and I'd love to help you make that happen. We are also in CCL constantly checking ourselves to keep true to our self-imposed but very important bipartisanship mandate. And in this vein, I'm extremely happy to have just given a presentation to uh, CCL's congressional liaisons on how to best communicate with Republicans and conservatives in lobbying meetings, tips on how to earn their trust, how to tell effective stories, and how to talk about climate policy in a way that relates to Republicans. Lastly, I'd like to also say that we're very excited by a new project that's been happening in Utah, where we are doing advertisements to try to recruit new conservatives um, who are interested in environmentalism, but aren't a part of CCL through online ads. We've been really impressed with the results right now and are hoping to get a lot of new volunteers through this. So thanks for asking about this, Peterson, and back to you. Thank you, Nate, for keeping us posted about successes and connecting with your fellow conservatives about climate. If you are conservative and want to learn more about CCL's conservative programs, or if you want to better understand how to connect with conservatives, visit cclusa.org slash conservatives. That's cclusa.org slash conservatives. You can then fill out a contact form so you can connect directly with Nate. Now, although I've had Nate Abercrombie on Citizens Climate Radio multiple times, we've actually never met in person, but that will change next month at the Conservative Climate Leadership Conference in Washington, D.C. As a journalist, I want to hear more about what young conservatives are saying about climate change, and I want to share those stories. So I'm going to give Nate a quick call so he can tell me and you what to expect at the conference.
This year, we're doing some things a little bit differently than we did last. So the conference is split into two days. On the first day, we'll be having a member of Congress come speak, Republican Congressman John Curtis, who is the chairman of the Conservative Climate Caucus in the House. There will also be a couple of panels that we're really looking forward to. The first one, which I will moderate, uh, will be made up of young conservatives who are really heavily involved in the climate movement. We're going to hear about their past successes, obstacles they faced, and how they envision the movement changing in the future. We'll also be having a panel focused on uh, hunting, fishing, and how similar outdoor activities are being affected by climate change. This panel will be made up of representatives from a couple of key sportsmen and conservation organizations who will discuss what they've been working on to address the issue. We'll also have a couple of workshops that day that will really help attendees improve their climate advocacy. We'll cover everything from how to best engage with social media to making connections in the environmental sphere to pitching your local government on climate policy and a lot of other stuff as well. Finally, it will be capped by a session with Neil Chatterjee, the former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, who's going to discuss with us uh, nuclear energy and permitting reform. The second day is really what's going to be quite different from uh, last year's conference, where we will have attendees lobby Republican members of Congress on climate action. We're going to preface all this by having some uh, group strategy sessions. And then in the afternoon, attendees will go to Capitol Hill to strike up conversations around permitting reform, forestry, electrification, carbon pricing, and, and a lot of other stuff as well. Well, I remember in February 2020, there was the first conservative conference and they lobbied in person then. And I remember the feedback afterwards. Even if the conservative wasn't from the district, they found that the member of Congress who was conservative they were visiting was like wide open. It was a totally different experience than when they talked to progressives or liberals or Democrats. What have you heard about this, of what happens when conservative citizens speak to conservative lawmakers? Getting conservatives in the room with Republicans really adds a, a major level of authenticity that can't be replicated in any other way. It's one of the reasons that CCL is so focused on bringing more conservatives into the organization, why they have me as a staff member to, uh, to do this job, because it really does make an incredible difference being able to have people in the room in those conversations who can authentically engage with Republicans, who can say that they have voted for and vote for Republicans. It, it makes all the difference in the world, in, in my opinion. And it's important that we you know, can keep engaging with Republicans because, as you know, we're now staring down a, a split Congress. We'd really be excluding ourselves from some of the most important conversations happening on the Hill were we not able to engage with Republicans. So. What could you say about what you've seen in the needle moving on climate with with Republicans that maybe the average citizen doesn't know? Something that might give them some encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of enthusiasm around what I mentioned earlier, the uh, conservative climate caucus in the House. It's been a great forum for members of Congress, Republican members of Congress to uh come together and discuss how they feel about certain policies to educate one another on the importance of the issue and to come to terms, frankly, with their need to engage on this. Uh, a lot of Republicans are reflecting on this past midterms, which were for them, frankly, disappointing. 
and realizing that they perhaps didn't do the best job engaging on the issue of climate. And I think a lot of strategists are going to be rethinking their approach in the future. So there's definitely murmurings uh, on the Hill and within the Beltway about how to, as Republicans, how they can engage on this in the future without being disingenuous to their previous positions on climate. I think there is a slow but seismic shift underway within the Republican Party that we're really going to see a lot more from them in the future in terms of policies that they're proposing and uh, ideas that they have for how to actually constructively reduce carbon emissions. And if anyone listening wants to find more information about the event, how to sign up, who else will be there in terms of speakers, if you just Google a uh, conservative climate conference, it will be the first result. So yeah, we'd love to have uh, love to have you there, listener. Thanks so much, Nate. The event is the Conservative Climate Leadership Conference. It's going to be in Washington, D.C. It takes place on March 28th and 29th, 2023. To learn more and register, just Google uh, Conservative Climate Conference. It will be the first result. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, being an effective storyteller is absolutely essential especially when engaging the public in the issues that matter to us most. For the rest of today's show, you will learn tips, strategies, and best practices for storytelling. We will look at stories about the impacts of climate change. These include incidents of extreme weather. They can also be stories about changes you have witnessed over time and the ways these changes affect you and everything and everyone you love. Let's hear a moving story that looks at the dangers caused by extreme weather. Dr. Natasha Dijonet is a public health expert who has been on our show many times. Dr. Dijonet is an assistant professor in the Christina Lee Brown Environment Institute at the University of Louisville Division of Environmental Medicine. She researches the health impacts of extreme heat exposure and environmental health disparities. She tells us a dramatic story from when she was 12 years old. It was late on a Saturday night, and mom, dad, and I were leaving the home of our family friends, a few miles from our home in Georgetown, Kentucky. It was extremely dark, but we could see that it had rained because the street looked a little wet and the grass had some rain droplets on it. But we were all smiles as we hopped in the car, reminiscing on the new memories we had just created with our friends. Then we started our drive home. Within less than a minute, I heard my dad say from the driver's seat, I can't see the road anymore. Within seconds, we figured out why, as the front tires splashed in the water, and then the rear tires. The tires were quickly submerged. As the water crept up, I heard the engine go from a strong hum to a low, deep growl. The water started to seep in the car, and it was puddling beneath our feet. Panic set in. We couldn't turn around. In fact, Dad no longer had full control of the car. We began looking desperately for solutions. I looked outside the rear passenger window beside me. And instead of solutions, I saw my 12-year-old reflection. On the other side of the window, I saw water creeping up. In my reflection, the water was at my chin. Panic turned into fear. 
Then the water was at the same level of my nose and my reflection. Fear turned into terror when I saw the water go over my head and my reflection. We were terrified. This was an entire family in the car, a dad, a mom, their only child, all of our hopes and dreams facing the immediate threat of death. As we searched desperately for a solution, we noticed the driveway nearby. This was our only hope. Somehow, the floodwaters guided us to that driveway and Dad began to regain control of the car and turn the car towards the driveway. We drove up the driveway and from there we watched the floodwaters for hours until about 3 a.m. Those floodwaters were higher than the mailbox at that house. We were mostly silent during that time, but I'm certain we were all individually sending up prayers of thanks to God for surviving the impossible. The next day, we shared our story with our friends, and they explained to us that that happens every time there's a heavy downpour, saying you can't get into or out of the neighborhood whenever that happens. They even shared their similar experience of being trapped in floodwaters on the same street with their small kids in car seats. Mom and I were on that street recently, and she pointed out a cross on the side of the road near our incident. And she explained that a woman had gotten trapped in the floodwaters a couple weeks before and didn't make it. They found her car the next day. Let's look more closely at Dr. Natasha Dijernet's story. It will help us see what an effective story contains. I find in her story three elements that are essential. One, an actual story or a narrative. Two, compelling specific details, especially those that tap into people's senses. And three, the emotions of the storyteller. You can hear these three very clearly in Dr. Dijernet's story. First of all, it is a story. She shares a specific moment in her life that includes characters, conflict, and a resolution. She's not telling us about her opinions regarding climate change or ideas for addressing it. She captures our attention with an action-packed story. Secondly, she provides compelling, specific details. As the water crept up, I heard the engine go from a strong hum to a low, deep growl. The water started to seep in the car, and it was puddling beneath our feet. And finally, she names multiple emotions like confusion, fear, panic, and relief. I don't know about you, but she also stirred up my own emotions. Stay tuned. In the next half of the show, Dr. Natasha DeJarnett will tell us about the all-important storytelling pivot. This is when you take your story and connect it to the action you want people to take. And we'll pivot right here to remind you that this is Spirit in Action with guest host Peterson Toscano filling in for me, Mark Helpsmeet. And our website is northernspiritradio.org. And on it, there are a lot of links that Peterson is sharing on today's show, all of which we will put on our site just as we do for all of our guests. Also on NordenSpiritRadio.org is a chance to comment on this and other shows. So raise up your voice, and if you care to, support us when you visit. We'd be very appreciative. 
Our shows are on all kinds of podcasts and between 35 and 45 community radio stations nationwide. So please, please, please support them and keep our communities and nation vital, informed, and enriched. And I'm going to rush us right back to the second half with our Citizens Climate Radio guest host, Peterson Toscano. In a moment, you will hear Dr. Dejernet as she shares the climate change pivot. This is an absolutely essential step in our climate communication. The climate change pivot bridges your story to an actionable next step. First, though, let's hear more climate change impact stories. In addition to stories about extreme weather, we can tell stories about the unfolding changes happening to the climate around us. These changes occur over years, and they affect us personally and emotionally. Poet Lillis Mellon-Ginyard writes poetry and nonfiction. In her short poems, Lillis shares what it feels like to live in this time of climate change. As a parent, she weaves in emotions that may be familiar to some listeners. Earlier this year, Lillis led a poetry workshop for climate change leaders. The BTS Center promotes spiritual leadership in a climate-changed world. For the workshop, they commissioned me to collaborate with Lillis. For people in North America who enjoy winter weather and feel a pang about the warming of our winters, Lillis expresses both grief and determination. Each poem is a mini-story of moments in the life of a parent and children. More importantly, Lillis tells the deeper emotional stories many of us quietly experience. After the Magi Depart by Lillis Mellon Ginyard On the tongue the names sparkle like snowflakes. Benzene, toluene, xylene, before their sounds melt into air. Parents watching kids leap and tumble in white drifts would need to repeat the syllables to keep them from evaporating. But who doesn't want fear to break into tiny pieces and float away? So of course we focus on the children, sledding down and trudging up the hill. Nothing around but cow pastures, cornfields, fences, and a drill rig flaring half-mile away the tip cozy like a candle. This is the life, the land we know. Change is coming. We can feel it like a dream and squint into the twilight looking for our kids, looking for a sign clear as an angel saying, Arise and take the young child. But all we hear is benzene, toluene, Xylene. The air is crisp and sparkles. Our children laugh through blue lips. Learn more about Lillis at her website, tentofonesown.com. Many thanks to the BTS Center for supporting the work of artists addressing climate change. Learn about their online book studies, retreats, their podcast, and other programs by visiting thebtscenter.org. 
Coming up, you will hear about the all-important climate change story pivot. Plus, Tamara Staten with the Resilience Corner. Stay tuned. The climate change pivot happens when you jump off of your story into the climate solution you're proposing. Dr. Natasha Dietrinet told us the moving story about her family trapped in their car in the middle of a sudden flood. In my reflection, the water was at my chin. Panic turned into fear. Then the water was at the same level of my nose and my reflection. After she tells this story... She then does the climate pivot. Climate change is causing more frequent and more intense flooding events. These increase our risk of illness, injury, and even death. This puts communities like our friends at greater risk. But adaptation activities can help protect us from the immediate dangers. For example, environmental health practitioners can work with planners to make flood-prone communities more resilient. But we urgently need mitigation action to prevent the climate crisis from getting worse. It's been said that we're the first generation to experience the health impacts of climate change. And it's also been said that we're the last generation that can do something about it. So you have your story and then the pivot. This combination might very well bring the person closer to acting on climate change. That means they're ready for a practical, meaningful, achievable next step, like want to join me for our next local citizens climate lobby meeting? Or do you want to get together over coffee sometime next week to talk more about this? All right, let me summarize everything we've covered today. Climate change impact stories are the most common stories I hear. The stories that reveal the dangers of climate-induced extreme weather and other impacts on our lives and the world. Make sure your story is compelling with specific details and emotions. Once you tell your story, switch to the climate change pivot. This is when you connect your story to the climate work you're doing or a particular solution you're pursuing. Finally, give your listener something to do. Suggest a meaningful and achievable next step. Next month, we will do a deep dive into another type of climate change story, a story that reveals the impacts of climate change solutions. And here's a little teaser for you. It is a future success story. This type of story relies a lot on our visioning and imagination. We need to imagine a world filled with solutions and then tell stories about this world. Our goal is to reveal what we are working so hard to achieve. You will find a large and growing collection of these types of stories on the website withmanyroots.com. This is the home of the Cli-Fi Imaginarium. I collaborated with Allison Whitaker, one of the facilitators at withmanyroots.com. She wrote a story, Immersed in a Solution. Together, we created a radio drama version of her story, Forest at the End of the Lane. 
This story was inspired by a climate solution known as tree intercropping. Tree intercropping increases the carbon content of the soil and the productivity of the land. It reduces erosion while creating habitat. It protects fast-growing annuals from wind and rain damage. It also protects light-sensitive crops from excess sunlight. And it draws up minerals and nutrients for shallow-rooted plants. Allison has a story set dab smack in the middle of a community forest garden. She shares a vision of what it would be like to experience tree intercropping. And she includes at least one creature who found a home in it. Here is Allison Whitaker with her story, Forest at the End of the Lane. I tug on my boots and shuffle through the tall, wet grass, carefully trying to dodge the last dandelions of the year. Mist floats just above the ground as the sun tries valiantly to burn through the clouds. Coco and I have just finished our breakfast, and it's time to do some foraging. I tuck a few wildflower blossoms into my gathering basket as we walk. Coco loves these walks. I love them too. We follow the lane until it ends in the neighborhood forest garden. When we moved to the Green Collective community three years ago, the first item of business was a course on respecting the shared spaces, including how to harvest food from the community forest garden. At first, I expected people to trash our shared spaces because in years past, shared areas became no man lands, unsafe, abused, and ignored. Seeing communities like mine turn this around has created an immeasurable sense of community pride. Forest fresh air revitalizes my body especially when I've been cooped up indoors. I breathe deeply in these walks. They allow me to recalibrate and give me time to think. As we walk along, I collect apples, spinach, wild garlic, and mushrooms. The birds sing in the canopy above, and I'm starting to learn their calls. Nightingale, woodlark, robin. We've learned to leave some food for the forest creatures because if we don't, they'll take the unripened fruit and vegetables or their population will dwindle and the ecosystem will become imbalanced. Forest gardens are all about balance and learning how to keep things in balance is something we're learning from indigenous cultures around the world. Our community collective has been key in connecting indigenous elders from around the world to towns like mine and ensuring they are fairly compensated for sharing their wisdom. It's led to flourishing indigenous communities and the regeneration of land in communities like mine all over the world. When learning the forest garden, we were told that there might be predators. They are an important part of the ecosystem. runs down my spine. Slowly, my breath comes again, my mind running through the possible scenarios. We aren't supposed to kill predators unless we feel our own life is in danger. Could I even kill if my life was in danger? 
I was trained to make myself look bigger and make loud noises to send threatening creatures running in fear. The last cry makes me believe this animal is in danger. Coco and I make eye contact, and I give her the hen signal to stay by my side. She silently slinks over. I leash her to be sure she doesn't get too curious, and we press on down the trail. I attempt to get a view of the source of the cries. We reach a vantage point, and through the mess of vines and undergrowth, I see it. Uh, what is that? It's a badger, and it's struggling. It seems to have a paw tangled in something, and that badger is not going anywhere. The badger's claws have carved deep troughs in the ground, and its lips curl back in a snarl to show very large, very yellow teeth. Fudge sickles. Do I try and help the badger and risk being hurt? Do I leave and let it perish? I tie Coco's leash to a tree and instruct her to sit quietly. In my bag, I carry a set of wire cutters because the forest garden was created on an old farm, and errant barbed wire in the underbrush is a regular nuisance. Looking more closely, I realize that the badger's paw is tangled. I edge the clippers out of my bag and slowly move forward. That was Allison Whitaker reading her story, Forest at the End of the Lane. Special thanks to the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit for their awesome badger sounds. Learn about their work at wildcru.org. You can read more future solution stories like Allison's over at the Cli-Fi Imaginarium. Just visit withmanyroots.com. You will find an outline of all these storytelling tips in our show notes, cclusa.org. Under the blog tab, select Climate Change Podcast. Look for episode 78, What is an Effective Climate Story? If you want to learn more about crafting climate change stories, I know of an excellent free online workshop coming up later this month. Ryan Hagen from Crowdsourcing Sustainability wrote to me about an online workshop February 21st. He says, when it comes to rallying support to make positive change, don't underestimate the power of your story. Our brains are wired for stories. They may be the best tool we have for connecting, communicating, understanding, and cooperating with each other. Sharing stories with each other helps spark and build strong relationships, and strong relationships are key to getting things done. On February 21st, you can meet Rachel Malena Chan. She is a story strategist and co-founder of Eco Anxious Stories. She's going to help us put eco-emotions into context so that you can respond to them with compassion. She's going to help us to craft our own personal climate story around the themes and characters that mobilize you. She'll help to communicate with others about the climate crisis from a place of personal clarity and empowerment. And finally, you'll learn how to apply a story as a powerful tool for organizing, connecting, and change-making. Visit crowdsourcingsustainability.community. That's crowdsourcingsustainability.community.
community. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and you will find a link for the event, Your Climate Story, Following Your Feelings. That website again is crowdsourcingsustainability.community. They also have lots of great resources, a blog, a podcast, and an online community. And if you want to learn even more about climate change storytelling and get real-life experience, join me at the Citizens Climate International Conference and Lobby Day in Washington, D.C. It will be in person June 10th through the 13th, 2023. The Citizens Climate Conference includes everything you'll need to power up your climate advocacy. And this year, you'll get to put everything you learn to use when you meet with members of Congress on Capitol Hill and talk to them about climate change. Registration is open now until May 21st. Visit cclusa.org slash June conference. That's cclusa.org slash June conference. Hi, I'm Tamara Staten, CCL's Education and Resilience Coordinator, and this is the Resilience Corner. I want to do everything that I can to see that you have what you need to stay strong and steady in the important climate work that you're doing. Last month in the corner, we reviewed five key steps to deepening resilience. Noticing, accepting, seeking help, practicing, and repeating that process regularly. And then we took a deeper look at the first step, noticing. While it's clearly important to notice the world around us, this first step of noticing encourages awareness of what's happening within us. And this can bring us closer to accepting our experience and the world as it is. And that's step two that we're going to explore today, accepting. There are two aspects of acceptance that can help us deepen our resilience. The first one involves making space and allowing for our thoughts, feelings, and needs. Because when it comes right down to it, what you need is what you need. The second part of acceptance involves a willingness to see our surroundings and circumstances exactly as they are in the moment. Acceptance in this way, free from judgment, allows us to focus our energy and attention on what matters most. As a foreign language teacher, I feel pretty fascinated by word origins. The Latin root of the word acceptance mean to take something to oneself. In my words, bring closer. Bring something towards your heart in a way that resonates and allows you to be close to it. This is the goal with acceptance. But it's not always easy, right? How often do we know exactly what we need? Last night, I was grumpy and irritable. I didn't know why. Initially, I resisted my inner grump and felt frustrated and annoyed with me, my mood, and not knowing why I felt this way. But then I remembered, make space, allow, bring closer. And with time and clarity around what I needed, my mood improved. Then there's the challenge of judgment and expectation. Once I'm clear on what I want or need, I can get pretty judgy about that need. Sometimes I tend to make my needs or feelings mean all sorts of things about me or others. If I'm tired during the day, I may get all up in my head about how I should have gone to bed earlier. If I'm hungry and need to eat, I might get hypercritical about what to eat and how often. It's so easy to spin out into criticism, especially with those needs that feel harder to meet. One challenge with this judgment, however, is that it makes it much harder to meet the need. Instead of hearing the need, I hear the story that I'm telling myself about needing it. 
For the moment, though, the best and most effective way through is with non-judgmental acceptance. Accepting our internal experience is definitely helpful. Similarly beneficial is making space and allowing for what's happening around us. This can be challenging, particularly when the circumstances don't favor us or leave us feeling deeply concerned, like climate change or election results. There's a big part of me, big, that doesn't want to accept certain things as they are. My desire for change motivates me to act, and I like that. Sometimes I worry that if I just accept things as they are, I'll just give up. But when I really think about it, accepting something doesn't mean I like it. Acceptance doesn't have to be a stamp of approval. Instead, the process of accepting, of taking something to myself, creates a level of peace and ease. It helps me to see things more clearly without being distracted by defiance. And that clarity makes more space to take action where it really matters. Next month, we'll take a closer look at asking for help. But for now, see what you can do to give yourself latitude to feel what you feel and need what you need without judgment, because we need you and your deep commitment to a livable planet Earth. I'm Tamara Staten with The Resilience Corner. I thank you for being here and for your commitment to progress. To learn more about tools, trainings, and resources for deepening resilience, check out our Resilience Hub at cclusa.org forward slash resilience. From there, you can also access and share Resilience Corner videos with friends and family who might be interested. And until next month, remember this. You are strong. You are resilient. And you've got what it takes to make good things happen. Thank you, Tamara. I am loving this series so much, especially how much you're encouraging to us, which I know we all need. At least I know I need. Thank you. The Resiliency Hub website is cclusa.org slash resilience. Thank you for spending this time with me on Spirit in Action. Today's show was produced by me, Peterson Toscano, along with assistance from Mark Helpsmeet. You can learn more about the podcast I produce at my website, petersontoscano.com. I now host a monthly podcast called Quakers Today. How do prevailing cultural values affect your life? What is your understanding of the divine and how it works in you? What music, films, or games represent how you see yourself in the world? Quakers Today are asking all sorts of questions. We decided to invite them and other seekers to share their questions and their journeys with us. Hi, I'm Peterson Toscano, host of the new Quakers Today podcast. Every month, Quakers Today will feature writers, musicians, and thinkers who are seeking wisdom and understanding in a rapidly changing world. You will hear views and reviews from a variety of guests, some famous and most just everyday people. Now I realize there's a lot of content coming at us all the time. We decided to create a short 15-minute show to share some of the people, media, and questions that help ground and guide us in our pursuit of a meaningful life. Each episode begins with a question. 
Now, we don't pretend to have all the answers. Instead, we have a place where you can hear people speak from the heart, grapple with faith, and share the insights they've found along the way. It's also a place where you will have the opportunity to share your own insights, reflections, and questions. Join me each month as I feature people who are not afraid to ask and answer deep questions. Quakers Today premieres November 15th, 2022, wherever you get podcasts. And I also help create the Climate Changed podcast. It's a show that looks at climate change from a religious lens. Today, you heard excerpts from Citizens Climate Radio. The show is available wherever you get podcasts. Learn more about the show, along with the trainings we offer, visit cclusa.org. That's cclusa.org. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. Now, I hand the controls back to Mark Helpsmeet. And I so deeply appreciate you and your work and art, Peterson. And I'm so excited about your new Quaker Today podcast. I'm not sure how you juggle all the podcast balls you have up in the air, but I'm so grateful for your world healing and world enrichment work. We'll have Peterson back with Citizens Climate Radio next quarter. And, as I said earlier, I'll include all the links that were mentioned in today's show on northernspiritradio.org. Follow them, comment, donate, and please join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.